Kia ora, hello, and welcome to the Intrinsic Motivation Podcast. This podcast is going to be slightly different from episode number one. I, Craig, become the interviewee, and my first guest becomes the interviewer. And the reason being is that over the last six weeks, I've had quite a major health incident scare situation that ended me being in hospital for over a month recovering from an open heart surgery which I had no idea was going to happen. Uh, Ricky thought that it would be a good opportunity for me to talk about it. So thank you very much for your time. I hope you get some value out of the podcast. Here we go. Over to you Ricky. Something happened a few weeks ago that uh, uh, shook your world. I know for me personally, the idea that an organ of mine might fail and lead to my untimely demise is something that feels like something I'd have to worry about in 30, 30 years time from now. And uh, yet that kind of uh, came up for you in a, um, uh, in a moment. Uh, and that was shortly after our last podcast. So. I'm going to call that like your episode and I'm really keen to hear um, a bit about that and um, you know and in all seriousness I came to you and said well you know you've gone through some pretty serious stuff over the last few weeks and uh, it actually seems fitting that you should be a guest on your own podcast so keen to to talk a little bit about that and it also ends up being something that is something that you know your kids in the future might listen to and have a laugh um, and and enjoy listening to which is pretty cool. But uh, before we do that, there are a few things that uh, I wanted to chat with you about. Um, and these kind of come down to things that I'd, I've noticed about you since, since getting to know you over the last few years. So one, one thing is I, I've always noticed, and this ties in with that whole intrinsic motivation kind of philosophy, but I've always noticed that you're someone who always seems ready for a laugh, even in high pressure situations. And uh, I learned that through your work on Crankworx this year and with the giant 2W Enduro as well. And I'm just keen to understand why do you think you're able to kind of keep lighthearted and have a laugh all through pressure situations? Well, pressure is a perception. So when you are under a situation that could appear to be pressure, if the person who's the leader of the scenario looks like they're unable to cope with that, then it's not a good reflection on the rest of the team. So if I can make make it seem lighthearted, then it's going to make it easier for everyone else as well. Mm-hmm. The pressure situations may seem like they're pressure situations, but I'm ready for them. So with things to worry about. So if we can just break it down a little bit into smaller pieces and say, okay, okay, so what's the deal? Oh, that's not so bad. Let's just let's break it into smaller bits so we can make, make it make the changes and find a solution and get it fixed. There's no point stressing everyone else out. And I'll give you an example and which relates back to about pressure situations. When I was in hospital a few weeks ago, I was getting this wire pulled out of my heart, which is, sounds really weird, but they leave a wire in your, in your heart and it sticks out your chest. But anyway, the nurses came up to me and they said, Craig, I need to pull this wire out. I was like, what wire? They said, you've got a wire in your stomach that's still attached to your heart. I asked him, oh, how does it normally come out? And they go, oh, easy, you just pull it out and just, you don't feel it. feels a little bit uncomfortable. Unbeknown to the nurses that the surgeon actually stitched it inside of me. They'd never, they'd never come across that before. And so they tried to pull this wire out of my heart and it didn't come. 
it didn't come out at all. So they tugged on it, tugged on it. It was up. It was. It was pretty uncomfortable, to be honest. Oh, bro, that sounds awful. So then they went and got a doctor. And there's there's a there's a moral to the story or a reason why I'm saying this. So the doctor was like, oh, what? He gave it a tug, and he literally had to pull his almost put his foot on me to pull it. So he, what they had to do was break the sutures inside of me to pull this wire out. I wasn't too worried about it. It was sore, but that was alright. The look on the nurses' faces of of horror and like they'd never seen anything like that before is an example of the doctor was fine, but the nurses weren't. Mm -hmm. They'd never seen it before. So the reason why I'm saying this is that I was only worried because the nurses looked worried. But if they had a smile on their face going, Oh no, it's right, this normally happens, I wouldn't have been that worried. But I was like, look at yeah. them going, Well, this 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 might be sort of serious. Sure. Um, so that's a, that's an example of why pressure situations. If you're calm and collected through that pressure situation, then everyone else is going to remain calm and collected as well. Yeah. So that's a long way of answering that question. It's like if you're calm, collected, and you can make a joke at about a situation, and you're under control, then it makes it easier for everyone. So you move forward without having a stressful situation. So did you uh, did you have pressure situations, you know, through your, I don't know, maybe teenage years and early adult life that where you got to become accustomed to pressure? Yeah. Kyokushin. Beginning of the 2000s, I started um, a martial arts called Kyokushin. Kyokushin, very simplistically, means the ultimate truth. And it's, a, it's a, an art. It's not an ancient art. It's an art that was developed from Masayama. Anyway. A lot of that is about trying to take you to a level in your physical or during a course of your training that your, your spirit breaks. And then when you get to that point, you're at a different mindset. Once you know how to, how to work past that, and an example is how I work past that is when you do your black belt grading. So you, in your black belt grading, they take you through two hours, maybe three hours of physical. So they're trying to exhaust you. And you've got to go through all your kata or everything that you've learned, you sort of got to put into one day. And then you've got to do 40 full contact fights nonstop for an hour and a half. So, yeah, so the first 20 are normally quite fine. You're, you know, you've trained for them. You can take the knocks and things like that. But then after that, it's just the will of your mind that takes you through it. And I think that's one of the, that is the catalyst to, it's changed me as a person completely kyokushin martial arts has completely changed me as a person from before that to the after kyokushin i'm 100 mm -hmm. different type of person and that's the reason why i've got i can make light harder things because i'm not getting kicked in the head and i'm not exhausted i'm i can just carry on like i got you know when i'm when i say 40 fights that was full contact bare knuckle fighting the last 20 fights is with black belts hmm so once, if you get through that, then after that, actually, they do another spirit test where you normally have to do something for five minutes nonstop. Mm -hmm. what, what did I do for five minutes? I had to hold up two um, kick pads, which probably weigh about, I don't know, five kilos on either side, like if you can imagine your wings out, arms out, sorry, um, for five minutes nonstop. And it's the very, very, very last thing you do. And it's quite hard to do anything for five minutes. Holding out is quite hard. 
but it's just that last little bit to try and break you and you just go into a mindset whereas nah this ain't gonna hurt me at all and that's how I that's it that's how that's how I can do what I can do nothing really phases me another thing that I noticed um, was that you really uh, were good particularly in the lead up to the uh, giant toy enduro you were really good at taking responsibility for things so you're always like if something was in your court you took complete ownership of it and and you'd you'd literally say to me you can take that off your plate now i've got this mm -hmm. and um you know i think that's quite a unique trait as well uh, and a super useful one but what situations in your life have primed you to be that way do you think i think it's not the situation it's what i've learned through reading podcasts and it's really about accountability once you understand or you've got you put your ego aside you've got a task and it's your responsibility to do something everything about that task is your fault what i mean by that is that if if joe who has been hired to do a job and he completely stuffs it up it's not his fault it's my fault because he wasn't trained properly or he wouldn't go through the process of management or this next level up didn't understand how to do it properly. It's not poor John's fault or Joe's fault that the job didn't get done. It's my fault because the process or the, um, the way that it's supposed to be done hasn't been translated all the way down. So that's, it's just taking accountability and not being afraid to do that. And, and personally, I feel that it brings a team together. They are more confident to make the right decisions if they know that they've got someone who is going to basically have their back, um, regardless mm. if they do something right or wrong. Another one is that to not, when we get, I get complimented on something really well, I don't really take it on. And, mm -hmm. and, the same, and for the same reason is that I don't really take on if I do something really badly as well, because that shit happens. Mm -hmm. So if you just stay in a, in a level mindset, you don't get high in your own supply, and then you don't, because you're always going to make mistakes, but you just can't dwell on those sorts of things. So if you stay in the middle of the whole, whole time, then you're going to be sweet, well-balanced, and centered sort of person. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's another trait of Kyokushin, to be honest. Head down, mm -hmm. eyes high, ears open. Mm -hmm. And do you think that uh, when, you, when you kind of look around, you think of interactions you've had, um, do you think that that's a, a skill or a trait that, that a lot of people possess this, that, that willingness to take accountability for what's theirs. What I've been reading recently about stoicism is that it's a, it's an actual trait of those types of people, but it's a mindset. And maybe mm -hmm. it's maybe some people do have that skill set or mindset or trait from birth, what's taught by the parents of the parented well or it's taught mm. from a um, mentor or someone in your life who's, who's taught you it. No, I mean, it's just interesting to me because I, I, I think, how do, you, how do you build good humans who, um, who have that as a natural character trait? And I, uh, the flip side of that question is, is like, um, under what circumstances can, are people not equipped to be able to do that? And what comes to mind is like, if they're insecure, mm. if they're insecure, people who, who, who have insecurities have a tendency to want to 
distance themselves from mistakes, distance themselves from uh, accountability in a sense. And Donald Trump's like a pretty interesting case study, right? I mean, he just, he sort of takes credit for all the things that are, that he wants to, and then just palms off anything that's, that's not, and it's, it's just an interesting thing to watch, I think. I don't know. If you change, if, if we all changed our, our minds to being one of the goal is happiness, whatever that is for you, is, is the way forward. Well, you seem in general to me like um, someone who's pretty uh, lighthearted. The other thing I noticed is that you're pretty quick to forgive when you've been slighted, when someone's um, maybe um, done something to offend you or hasn't met your expectations. Um, so tell me a little bit about, about that character trait. You've got a choice. You either want to, you either want to be resentful, or you want to give forgive someone, or you hold a grudge. What's the point? You either talk talk about how someone's not the person who you think they should be, or you just act like the person who they should be, and that's it. And that's all the that's all the action you want to you need to take. So I don't understand what's the point of looking at backwards at someone's what someone's done, unless it's something like terrible, something that's grievous or disgusting unlawful if it's something minor that if you look at it in con comparison to what could be worse like if someone's arguing with you about i don't know something that's happened at work like the reality is that is, is it going to stop the world from turning around does it really matter is is there any point thinking about it and dwelling on things that are really a small thing that if you're the bigger person, not even the bigger person, if you just think about it and go, well, it's not that big of a deal, it's out of my control, let's just move on. Let's just do that. But uh, I mean, I guess, like, you know, growing up, you if you uh, if a child puts their hand on a fire and they get burnt, then they avoid that. So they're like, not going to do that again, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and in the same way, if somebody lets you down, or they do something stupid on your watch, um, then that's essentially like them burning you. And so the natural reaction, I think, is to, to the human nature towards a situation like that is to actually avoid it, to cut it off and avoid it. And so I can understand why why people might burn bridges or um, or um, or cut people off if they've let you down. But you know, you don't seem to do that. So what if you had to go back to a time in your life that kind of cultivated that givenness in you what where does your mind go to my mind goes to if someone makes a poor decision you don't know what was going through their life at the time where they made that decision and there's a whole background of information that we are unaware of of, of why people make make rational bad decisions so if you put yourself in their shoes they could have a mental illness they could have they could have really troubles at home. Someone could be really sick. Someone could be... So if you go, well, that's uncommon for that person to act like that. I'm just going to let it slide. Then that's, that's, that's fine. Or they're under pressure or they've got financial troubles. There's a whole myriad of issues that could be in the background that we're unaware of. So let's just assume that they're just having a bad day. So how, how did you learn to take that approach? 
because I'd like that to happen to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, here's, here's your last question for the second part. This is, uh, tell me something nobody would believe about you, but that is true. So this is unofficial, but I'm probably the best person in the world um, to crumb fish, panko crumb fish. Also, and another unofficial, I am the funniest father in the world with the best dad jokes. I said the last part of that was that please make sure that it's true. <laughs> I think you just you just shit the bed on that one. You just lost all credibility. Well, you can line up anyone with some panko crumb fish. Um, whether I did it last couple of nights ago, and I'll tell you what, the chef in the house was pretty impressed. Is that right? Well, you're gonna have to prove that to me at some stage, I think, Frank. Mm -hmm. To be honest. Yep. Nice. Well, so that leads us on to the third part, and uh, comes back to kind of the reason why I thought you'd be a good guest on your own podcast, <laughs> which is this episode that happened to you a few weeks back. It's a bit, been a bit of an adventure for you, I know. For everyone's benefit, if you started by talking us through the day that that you had the episode, I guess, and how, how it kind of started. Cool. Okay, so it was Easter Monday. It was a normal sort of day. Um, wake up early with the kids, put a movie on because it was a holiday. Just a regular sort of day. One of my goals for the day was to actually hit, hit some punching bags. I've got some. I'm lucky enough to have a garage with a, a pretty good setup for training my martial arts and kyokushin and things like that. So I thought I'd sweep out the garage uh, mid-morning. I did sweep out the garage, get all get everything nice and tidy and go for a warm-up jog. Up, we live in Rotorua, New Zealand, and run up a, I do a warm-up run up a hill. It's about one and a half k's and come back down. It's always a good good way to warm up before hitting some bags. I got all ready to go, said goodbye quickly to the kids, started running up the first hill. I began, I had this weird sensation come down my shoulders, down to my fingers, and, and, a, and a sort of quite a heavy feeling in my chest. I got really lightheaded. Sort of like the lightheaded when you've when you've had too much to drink and then you lie down in bed when you get home and you just start spinning out. And I had that sensation while I was trying to run up this hill. So I went to a walk and then I decided I need to sit down. Then I decided that I actually need to close my eyes for a second or two. So I lost consciousness for I don't know how long it was, but it wasn't very long. I got up realizing that we're still on level four lockdown. Going, I need to get home. Luckily enough, one of my neighbours was up the road working on his new fence. He saw me get up. I went to get myself back down the hill to home and I tripped over, skinned up my face and knees and arms. Got to my, got to my, um, to a seated position again and he yelled out, mate, are you alright? And I, it's the first time ever in my life that I had to like I, my first instinct was to say, "No, nah, I'm fine," but I had it's I, I said it in my head, oh, "I'm fine," but then I, my out of my mouth came, "No, nah, man, I don't think I am well." So he was like, "Holy moly!" Probably thinking I had COVID nineteen, to be honest. Chest. Mm. Um, he True. didn't. He's like, "Mate, Rob's up the road. He's a doctor. I'll go and grab him." Rob came down. Awesome neighbor. 
he asked me what's going on. He instantly called the ambulance. He said, you've had some sort of cardiac issue or some sort of cardiac failure of some sort. I asked them if someone could please go down to just down the road. It was probably about 80 meters from there to get Julia to tell her that an ambulance is on the way. I also said I had a dog with me, expecting the dog to run home, bark at the family like a movie and say, woof, 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 Craig's in trouble. Alas, the dog had kept running and not worried about me at all. And he was, I don't even know where he went. I haven't fed him since, to be honest. Someone else is looking after him now. He's still at home, though. Um, and <laughs> then the ambulance got called. Jumped in the ambulance. They, it's not obviously not the first time the ambulance has come across a patient that has, I was now a patient that has had some sort of cardiac issue. They jab you with this thing I now know called Clexane in the puku in the stomach, which instantly thins your blood. Put me on an ECG to check my heart rate. And I was off, said goodbye to Julia. Unbeknown to me, I was heading towards the emergency department of the hospital it's a potential COVID risk. However, it was as soon as I got to that hospital and the doctor put her stethoscope on my heart, she said, you need to get to Waikato Hospital ASAP because you've got a, a murmur in your heart. And I could hear it. I mean, a murmur is like a regular heart. It's like, duk, 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 duk. Mm -hmm. My one was going, duk, 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 like this which was when, at the time, they were, she probably knew what, she, the doctor, she probably knew what was going on, but she said that you need to go to, uh, to Waikato Hospital, which is, the, which is about an hour and a half drive. Um, originally, I was going to go in a helicopter, but the weather was pretty poor, so they didn't chuck me in a helicopter. I was in the ambulance quite quickly after that, and I was at, in the emergency department, as in, still as a COVID risk, but with no signs of any sort of issue. And yeah, then that ended up in the cardiac ward. So, so, so at this point, I mean, so you, you mentioned about passing out. Firstly, like how long, how long do you think you're out for when you're coming up that hill? Do you uh, have any idea? I think it was seconds. Like it might've been, I closed my eyes and I, I forced myself to wake up, regain consciousness because I realized that no one's around. We're in the middle of L4 lockdown. I could, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. I, I need to get home, and if I had to crawl home, I would have, and I was glad to see that that doctor, or the neighbour, um, had the foresight and was keeping an eye on people, which is which is pretty cool, actually. And, um, and so, I mean, were you re reluctant to, to have an ambulance called? Like, were you, were you thinking that maybe you should just jump in the car, or where was your head at at that point? When the doctor said to me, who was on our street saying that you've had some sort of heart attack. I couldn't, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. I was in a way hoping that I had COVID-19 rather than having a, some sort of heart issue. And when I sat in the ambulance for the first time of on the way, I suppose I felt a little bit embarrassed for myself. It was the first time that I'd ever felt insecure, I suppose, about the, my ability to 
to um, to look after myself or my family, and it was like a real Stephen hard to think about now. To be honest, mm. it was, you know, like it's the first time I, I've ever not been able to defend my family potentially, and it mm. was pretty, it was pretty heavy, and it was pretty hard to process. You know that you know that I'm not a vegetable. I'm a mortal human. Yeah. You try and process that all in one second when originally you're heading back to go and um, punch some bags and to, <laughs> and then you end up in a, in a hospital for over a month. It was it's it was a pretty it was a pretty heavy situation to try and process all this stuff. And then when the doctor at the ED said to me, "You've got a, you've got something wrong with your heart, man. You need to go and we need to figure out what that is." Mm. It was. I got phone calls and things, and it was hard to even talk to anyone to say, "Look, I've got a, I've got something wrong with my heart." Didn't know whether or not that was the end for me, mm-hmm. or or what? Did did you did you think that at some point? You don't. I I don't know if I did or if I didn't. Who knows? I I never go to the yeah. doctor. I'm the, I don't know if I'm a typical sort of Kiwi, but the last time that they said it, I had any record of me being at a doctor was. They asked me if I still live in Lonsdale Crescent in, in Rangatai in Wellington, and I didn't live there since 2011. So that was mm. the last time I'd, I'd actually been to the doctor, and that was because I had a sinus infection that was giving giving me an earache. Mm. So, you, so you get this ED doctor saying that you've got this kind of murmur, you've heard it yourself, and then you've been recommended to get to Waikato Hospital. How did you actually get there? Um, ambulance in the end, and so ambulance came, and we boosted off to. Quite quickly, I was only in ED for probably forty minutes. Um, I wasn't able to see anyone. I didn't see any of my like because of the COVID lockdown period. We, I wasn't at any visitors, so we're in. I was in the ambulance probably thirty minutes later, on my way to Waikato Hospital to be processed through the ED and yeah, to, for them to try and figure out. What was going on and at that time I wasn't at any risk I'd stabilized and I wasn't even like I felt like I could have probably gone home right they did everything had finished I suppose what I originally thought it was was when I was running up that hill was actually a residual chest infection or something like that it just felt like my lungs were heavy mm. and I was like oh man I've still got this bloody lungs because I've had I felt it for the last like month or so especially when I was riding up a steep hill mm-hmm mm. And so you get to Waikato Hospital, uh, you still don't really know what's going on. No. How long before you do know? Probably two or three days. So I got processed, put into a ward. The doctors come around in the morning, do their, do their rounds, and then they ask you a whole bunch of different questions. And what they're trying to do is work out every potential scenario that you could be. I know in their minds that they were pretty confident of what the issue was, which was that I had a something wrong with my aortic valve. I didn't even know. I didn't even. I don't know anything about my heart. I do. I know a little bit more now because of the murmur, which means means that it just wasn't working in its full capacity. wasn't pushing oxygenated blood to your body. The first place your heart pushes oxygenated blood to is your is your is your brain. You're, if you're fainting, it means you've probably got a lack of oxygen going on in the brain. So it's it sort of indicates that it's that part of the heart. So I knew they needed that, but they needed to go through all these different 
they need to, so it's basically solution focused for them as well. So they need to take away everything that's possibly wrong with you before they can actually figure out exactly what's wrong with you or right with you. So they take you through an angiogram, which is this little, it's actually a pretty cool thing um, where they shove a camera up your artery in your arm and it goes up into your heart. You're all conscious when this happens and then they can look at your, look at your arteries from the top end. You can see them as well on the cameras and see whether or not they're clear or not. Mine were clear, they were fine. So which instantly meant that they knew what the problem was, which was that I had a, um, a leaking aortic valve in my heart, which was causing the murmur, which meant that it, I was pushing blood out, but then retaining blood on the way back when it closed back up as well. Right. So the only prognosis from that is to replace it. And did they did they say what would happen if you didn't replace it? Eventually you'd die because you, you're not... It'll just get worse and worse and worse and worse until your heart has a complete failure. Mm -hmm. So let's just say I had a little leak. Like, if, it, if it, to be honest, if it wasn't for the COVID-19 scenario, because the hospitals were quite quiet, because they mm -hmm. were expecting it to be busier, they may have sent me home for a month or so until I could ha have a, a space in the theatre to get fixed. That mm. could have been the scenario because of the lack of people that were in the hospital. They said, no, we, we can get you fixed um, in the next week or so. So it's wow. best to stay in here and, and we'll get it done now. Wow. Okay, so it's a couple of days. You've, they've done the tests. You've found out what the situation is. Now you've got some certainty. And I mean, where is your mind going to at this point? I said to myself, you've got a choice. The choice is to either look at this as why me, I'm a victim, why Why has this happened to me, or let's, let's smash this out and use this as a positive step forward in my life. And I chose that way because there's no way I was going to be thinking about why me because it is me and why not me. I'd rather it be me than someone else because I know I'm fit and healthy and I'll be able to get through it. I'm young. It's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And that's the way right. I've stayed, that 100%, and I'm still going to be fine. I mean, it's interesting you say that because you, and you've spoken a little bit about your martial arts stuff and, um, and how that had kind of prepped your mindset. But, I mean, I believe not everybody that you ran into up there had shared that same uh, mindset themselves uh, on the cardiac ward. So maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the people you met. You don't need to name names, but like just um, maybe some experiences and observations you had of the other people that were coming in and out of the cardiac ward over your time there. The cardiac ward's an interesting place to be. So I think I was in there for, I can't, I can't recall the date, but Easter Monday, but my, my operation was on the 24th. So it might have been eight to 10 days or something like that before my operation. But it's a busy place. So the doctor or the surgeons are working on up to 120 different patients each week, just in the cardiac ward alone. Generally what happens, generally, if the people are, let's say, lucky, is lucky in a weird way, it's like they're mowing the lawns or they're doing the hedging or they're riding their bike or doing something and they have a heart cardiac sort of arrest. They'd come and they'd get a, they'd go through the, the angiogram, they'd 
they'll check the artery, the artery will be some sort of blocked and they'll put a couple of stents in or one stent which is basically you have an artery, if it's 60% blocked they put in, like, it's basically like a little washer but like a medical one that keeps that valve open or that that artery open to make the blood go in and out next day they're gone oh, gone home no it is not not gone gone dead <laughs> <laughs> typically what i saw to give you an example i'd be in a ward it would almost empty out and i'd be the only one in there i was thinking yes i'm gonna have a good sleep tonight because you don't have good sleep in hospital and then yeah. by the afternoon it'll be full with different people but it's not always a good prognosis and everyone has to deal with firstly understanding that they've had an issue with their heart which is not always easy and you see some people some people have a really bad prognosis and it's and it's not it's not good a lot of them go internalize things and go very very quiet other people put on this like mask to try and hide the actual reality of their feelings and they put on this bravado of of masculinity let's say where they they act like they're not not worried but then when you hear them talking with the medical teams it's obvious that they're really 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 frightened and unsure and intimidated by the whole scenario mm -hmm. like some people were having like triple bypasses there's people in my ward who I got to know died suddenly it's a it's it's a different world being on the other side of the hospital I've never seen it before mm -hmm. and how people process things everyone's slightly different and how they do that like some people can't like you have no conversation and everything's about them whatever the conversation is whoever they're talking to which is fine because that's how they're dealing with with the situation and it, it's I suppose for me it's it's helped me realize that everyone's going through their own thing and can deal with, has to deal with things their own way. And it's, it can relate back to the situation where now in the pandemic where a business has got their back to the wall and unsure of what's going to happen in the future. And there's two ways to, well, there's simplistically, you can either step into it or keep backing out of it and acting like a victim and being entitled and expecting things to not happen to you or someone's always got to help you when the reality is that the only person who's going to help you is yourself and your mind because the one thing that I did say to I, every day at hospital I got up I had a shower I got into my clothes I didn't wear their backwards 90s I acted like a normal person at home because my body was in hospital, but my mind wasn't in hospital. And I used the opportunity in the spare time, the lot of time I had to read, to listen, to write. I wrote down pages and pages and pages of notes and journaled my whole time. I've probably got 100 pages of writing just to, to write down what I was going through and what I was thinking and I think it really did help. I mean, you had a... I think you had one confrontation you were telling me about where maybe somebody else on the ward was kind of venting a little bit or something. Yeah, there's, there's some, some people are, it's interesting. There was this, he was a young guy actually. 
well, youngish, I suppose. Like I was young. I'm 41, and I was the I was the baby. Like it's funny. Before you have you get your medication in the morning and in the evening. Say your birth date, and I'm like seventh mm -hmm. second seventy nine, Craig Murray, and then I would make John next week be like John McEnroe, fourteenth to <laughs> the fifth nineteen thirty five, and then other ones like nineteen forty two. I was like, damn, I'm young compared to you guys. So it was actually refreshing in that way that, you know, some people are like actually two of the wards that I was in. It was actually a hell of a good time. It was everyone was laughing and having a good time and. People are talking about they can't wait to go home and have beers and things like that and catch up with their mates, which is quite cool. But the the third ward I was in after my, well, I was actually like six, but the, after my recovery, after the operation, that is, sorry, it was a bit more serious, that one. Um, people a little bit more uptight. One guy was like, every time he got some food, I thought the food, just so you know, if anyone's in the Waikato Hospital and then who does the catering, I thought your the food there is amazing. Can, um, and and everyone who's every single person who work there is awesome everyone it's from every single person who work there i thank them every day they're all amazing however some people are just don't have any type of respect for them are the are the chickens dry <laughs> are the minces undercooked or not that the mince was just complain about everything so mm. this one guy he can all he complained about everything Everything was someone else's fault. So I didn't confront him. I spoke to a guy next to me and I was looking out the window because we have a pretty good view actually overlooking Lake Rotodoa. And I was saying, you know, you know how lucky we are? And he goes, why is that, bro? He's like, I was like, can you imagine how much it costs to stay in a hospital and have this amazing care? And he's like, hmm, I don't know. Can you imagine how much it would cost? If we had to pay to have heart surgery or have this type of surgery and having all these medical practitioners working on us, he's like, man, I've never thought of it like that. And I think everyone in the room took a couple of seconds to realize how lucky we actually are to live mm. in our country to have such amazing medical care for free. Mm. Like we pay taxes and we get that back multiple times when the shit goes down. If we're in America and we didn't have any sort of insurance, would be hit with a massive bill, and then you'll happen to them. So we're blessed and thankful to live in Aotearoa because we have an amazing medical system, and I will be always grateful for the work that they did on me, my family, people I don't know. It's awesome. Was there anyone on who you got to know throughout that process that you really looked up to because of the way they were handling their situation or anything like that? There was a guy who I really got to know quite well who wasn't handling it very well. He was always doing additional research, always freaking out, always asking too many questions, not too many questions, always asking questions. He, I don't know how he did it, but he came a medical practitioner whilst he was in hospital for three days and he was telling the doctor, I don't think I need to take that one. And <laughs> But we got to know each other and I was like, dude, I, don't, I think you should just let them do their job and I think their, their interests are in your best interests. They're not trying to drug you or anything like that. They're trying to help you. And we got talking, I got to know him really well. He's actually a good guy. He's from Rep 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 
he came around from being super worried, like so stressed, you could see it, to becoming at ease of his situation. So he had to have a triple bypass or a double bypass in a, in a weird part of your heart, which was quite a difficult operation apparently to, to actually do. So it was interesting to see his process of, of the way he worked out how to deal with his prognosis, which was actually quite good to be honest. His risk levels were like 3% death sort of thing, which is like pretty common. Like The surgery for these guys is like, working an open heart for these guys is easy stuff. It's like, like if I was to repair it from anything, it would be, I can't actually. <laughs> a, mechanic, a mechanic fixing an engine that's got a part that always breaks. It's probably that's probably the easiest way to think of it. They just take a bit out, put it back in, sew you up. Maybe a bit of oil leaks, they'll take you apart again, fix that oil leak, and then away you go. There's a standard, standard time of recovery, and then it's up to the individual to make it faster or slower. Mm -hmm. mm. The and weird so... one, yeah. The weird one about my mate from Reparador, though, he went through his heart surgery. He, I got to know him really well. We're actually going to catch up quite often. We worked out a little plan to do some work together. He, um, he was going to rein back his, his work, the work that he was doing, and develop this new trailer. He'd already sort of started working it out. He'd already ordered a new um, 100 foot extension on his garage in Ripperall. He was going to do digital marketing. I went home, shook his hand, wrote him a note of encouragement, saying things like, you know, you got this, use this situation as a step forward in your life and a positive step forward. I texted him when he got home, text back, yeah man, stoked to be home. Left him for a couple of days, text him two days later. His wife texted me back and he, she said that he died suddenly last night in his sleep. That was a pretty heavy scenario. Only young man. I was actually getting a, at the time I got this text, I probably shouldn't be looking at text while I was getting a blood pressure done, but I was, my blood pressure was 165 over something that was real, the doctor's like, wow, that's high, and I was like, yeah, check out this text, and he's like, okay, that's probably why, because <laughs> my heart, my blood pressure is normally about 120 over 70, something like that, which is quite normal. Unreal. Mm. So there's, unreal. yeah, there's some, there's some interesting scenarios that happen. It is what it is, man. Like, it's real sad. You just got to be thankful that you're still here and breathing. Mm. And so for Julia over this time, so she's at home, right? Like, she's at home. You're isolated. We're in level four lockdown, so she can't even really come see you. And you're, uh, and she's at home with the kids, and, and you can't see them either. So, you know, what was her experience like through this? Yeah, the only time that she actually could see me was... This is a super weird scenario where she could have 25 minutes to half an hour the day before I had my operation. We had mm -hmm. the social distance. It was an open ward, and that was yeah. only yeah. So it was it was it wasn't it wasn't the most intimate time, but it was an awesome time. But so Julia's works for the um, central government, and they've been amazing actually. So they basically just said, "You look after your whanau. We got we got this. We'll handle this while you do that here." Video calling, like in the mornings and and whenever we could, was was really was really awesome. But at the same time, it was really hard as well. Some, mm. especially some days when you're like, man, I, anything I I could do anything, 
to be right where they are, reading their books, snuggling with them, mm. but you're stuck in a hospital with, with, you know, 15 mil pipes coming out of your puku, yeah. draining into a thing. It's just like, it's pretty, it just gives you a lot of perspective about things, right? Mm. Just, and you, you've got to, don't sweat the small things, but at the same time, appreciate the small things too, because they're the coolest things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, a, and a poignant sort of song is the little things from Trinity Roots, which is, they're the best things. Yeah. Fortunately, in our bubble at home, we had um, Julia's mum and Jimmy staying with us. And it, like, if, if this scenario could have happened in a better time, I don't think it could have happened in a better time, personally, for for our situation where I didn't miss out on much, to be honest, because everyone was in lockdown. Um, the weather has been amazing. Mm. So, you know, there's walking and things like that. So, um, yeah. So Julia, she she nailed it, smashed it, knew she would. Um, mm. The kids have been amazing and they're still amazing. They know that they can't run and come and tackle me at the moment because I've got a broken sternum. Mm. But it's healing, but every day, getting a little bit tough, stronger, so it's, it's super good. And so uh, the first time you got to see them after the surgery, uh, how, how was how was that? Because I imagine going into the surgery, you know, it's it's hard to think that you're. It's hard for me to imagine because it's obviously your experience, but um, and and it's it's uh, yeah, not something I could kind of liken to anything that I've experienced before. But I imagine that. Uh, that that would have been a pretty damn good feeling to have one come out the other side of a of a very serious um, uh, heart operation, and then to 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 be bouncing back and be on the road to recovery, and then to get to see them must have been a great feeling. Well, it's, it was weird. I'm going to say it wasn't for me. It wasn't what I expected. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. I just felt a little bit useless, mm-hmm. to be honest. When you see someone, your kids, and all you want to do is give them a big hug, and you can't. Mm-hmm. You can't even really do anything. It's it's it was it was pretty it was pretty weird to be honest. Like I was obviously obviously stoked and stuff, but it's uh, it took a couple of days to. It's like I was incarcerated for a month, sort of thing, and then you got a little bit free. I was pretty frail as well. And it was sort of a little bit hard to feel any sort of real emotions mm. for a while. And it was like, I've been asked a few times, oh, I bet you it must have been amazing to come home and see the kids and things. I go, of course it was and is, but it wasn't what <laughs> wasn't at all what I expected, like tears of joy and things like that. It was just, it was, it was, it was quite, it was, wow. I, I, I don't think I could explain what, what that feeling was, to be honest. Yeah. Mm. People say that you know after um, having having serious surgery that uh, you know you've still got a lot of um, you know drugs and stuff in your system which are designed to kind of pain and things like that. It can take a while to bounce back, and after something su- such a huge intervention, you know the the body can do some funny things. Uh, how long after the surgery before you started to feel normal again? In the hospital, after after you're disconnected from everything, post operation, like you have tubes coming out of your, I had the one in my mouth, and I was on a I was on life support. They take that one out, and then you've got you've got a catheter, and they take that out, and then you've got these three massive 
15 mil tubes in your, in your lungs and in your heart, draining everything out, and they take those ones out. All conscious as well when they take those ones out. And then you're still connected by a, uh, an echogram or, echogram or ECG um, portable one that's in, that you have to hang around you, and when that comes off, it's another layer of stuff, and then they pull that thing out of your, out of your chest. That was... <laughs> Once you start getting dis disconnected from things, you start feeling a little bit more normal. But mm -hmm. normal is... It's a new normal because you can't... Like, it's not like I got up and started jogging. Mm. It, was, it was a slow... The first day I could walk 10 metres. The second day I could walk, like, one length of the hallway and then two lengths of the hallway the next day, and then I went to like six, and then 10, and 15, and then they said, it's time for you to go home. To be honest, it's, it's when when I started seeing friends again, and having a laugh, and being able to laugh again. Like the drugs, I don't think actually um, impacted me at all. I was mm. I had to inject myself twice every day for the first three weeks, which was quite uncommon, with this thing mm -hmm. called, called Clexane. Um, in the stomach, which was, um, I only stopped it last week actually, which made sure that my blood thins enough so my body doesn't reject the bit of steel that I've now got in my heart. Mm -hmm. Because your my my body metabolizes drugs quite quickly, apparently, mm -hmm. and so everything they gave me just didn't. They had to give me massive doses of things. Mm -hmm. So so I take warfarin at the moment. And I'm on enough warfarin to probably kill a big, a large donkey. <laughs> um, so warfarin thins your blood. It's the same drug that kills rats. Yeah. Different doses, obviously. But I have to take a lot of that just so mm. that I can get to a medium sort of stabilized space. Mm -hmm. mm. But I'm feeling Far. good now. Yeah. The other day I walked 10 kilometers. Yesterday I walked 12. You've got to take. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> keep, keep, keep moving forward. I know that uh, that someone once said, someone um, once said, if it if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. So, uh, how do you think this whole experience has changed you? It's made me understand that things can always be a hell of a lot worse than what they are. Mm. But it also has made me look into different readings. So I've read this book called, this book actually was, well, it wasn't really written as a book, but it was, it's a notes of Marcus Aurelius from um, about 129 AD. I've read it twice now. One thing is that kiss your kids and say goodbye to your family like you're never ever going to see them again because you never know what's happening around the corner. It could be the last time you ever see them. So next time you say goodbye to your kids or your wife or anyone, it could be the last time you see them. So don't leave any sort of negativity on the table. Don't leave with having an argument. Or it's easy to say now, but don't because you jump in the car, a truck will hit you, you, you whatever happens, it's not normally planned. So if you can leave and, and that's stoicism at its finest where when soldiers used to go to war they'd kiss their family goodbye like they may not return and mm -hmm. I feel that that's something that I always do 
Well, I think that just about uh, wraps us up. I've got um, one more question for you. Before I ask that, though, um, is there anything else you felt like you wanted to cover? No, I think I just appreciate that. If anyone who's listened right through this recording is here, um, I've got a. Um, and if you want to learn a few books that I've read whilst I've been a crook, The Obstacle is the Way, Ryan Holiday is an amazing book that sort of pulls together a whole bunch of philosophers' ideas or ideologies into one easily to read book. And if you ever come to a scenario or an obstacle or a situation similar to COVID at the moment, instead of looking at it as being a victim, look at it look at it as a leverage point to see what and where you're going to go after that. So if your back's to the wall, the only way to go is to step forward and move into it rather than move away from it. Well, bro, that was, um, that was awesome. I mean, I, I, when I think about, uh, when I think about what you've experienced, it's kind of like, you know, talking to somebody who's gone to a different planet <laughs> and have come back from this experience that feels like it's hopefully way, way, way in the future for, 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 for me or and for the listeners, but you know, you've, you've come back and shared a bit about, um, what you saw and, uh, what that experience was like. And, um, and uh, uh, yeah, super, super interesting. And hopefully mm. it fits in well with the uh, sentiments of the podcast that you're trying to create. But to close, one last question for you. Fast forward five years and imagine that we're sitting down again to reflect. What will be the biggest differences that will stand out from your life before heart surgery, your life after it? I hope that I'll, I'll re remain on the path that we're in. Always look for the positives, although I think it's part of my DNA anyway, but look at look at it in a different point of view. So in five years' time from now, I'll have a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old, and hopefully the lessons that I've learned have been passed on through to them to make them stronger individuals and whatever path they go on, I've helped with their esteem to get to where it is, to get to where they're going. Work-wise, I'll just be doing what I'm doing, man. Just do the best you can all the time. Thank you so much for tuning in. Episode two was not exactly what I anticipated episode two being like, but hope it added value to your day thank you so much for your time episode three coming up in the next few weeks